you know, uh, <clears throat> like I've, I've said this before, but we always, uh, we have these two signs up here, pray like Jesus and honor the Holy Spirit, because I've said before, um, when things, actually somebody, somebody said this one time, when things go hard for the church, these are the only two things left we really understand, we have to be really good at doing. I mean, color of the carpet, whether we sing with guitar or organ is really irrelevant, but in the end, when things get tough, this is, these are the two foundational things. So on the pray like Jesus thing, last week we, we prayed for one another using one of the prayers of Jesus from John 17, but so go to that next slide that has the pray like Jesus we're not going to pray for each other, but again, what I tell people is sometimes the best way to learn how to pray is just take some phrases from Jesus' prayer. I mean, if he prayed it for us, it's probably good. I mean, it's probably a good prayer. So one of the things he prayed for in John 17 was for the, his disciples, us, uh, that we'd be kept safe from the evil one. So uh, I'm gonna, we, instead of praying for each other, I'm just going to pray to take that phrase right now and pray for Aaron and Sadie and Knox, all right? Because even in the midst of pain and difficulty, and they're on their way to Riley now, sometimes Satan can get his foothold in and try to start disrupting your trust of God and things like that. So let me just pray for them. So God, I pray for Aaron and Sadie, uh, first of all, that you would keep them safe from the evil one. Because we all know how Satan uses uh, hardship, difficulty, obstacles, pain. And he uses that in ways where he knows exactly how to find an opening and to start uh, chipping away at our absolute trust of Jesus. So I pray for Aaron. I pray that you'd uh, guard his heart. You'd protect him from the evil one. You would um, guard his ears from the lies of Satan. I pray for Sadie in the same way. And God, we don't, you know, who, who knows what two-year-old Knox fully understands and comprehends, but we do know she's a spiritual being. So I got, God, I pray that you protect her from the evil one in the ways that Satan knows probably how to emotionally, whatever, just, God, would you guard her heart from any ways in which uh, Satan can use or would use this even into her future in ways to chip away at her trust of you? Because, God, you are good and you're, and you're trustworthy. So I pray for Aaron and Sadie Knox. They would uh, find that as a bedrock truth in their lives. Even today, as they're on their way or either, maybe it might already be at Riley, I just pray that you would guard, put a guard over their room uh, your word says the angel of the Lord surrounds those who fear you. So I pray that uh, in whatever way that looks like, would you do that around their room at Riley? And I ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, <clears throat> go to the one that has the pictures on it. So this, this is a continuation of some other things I've said in future weeks. So let me just go to this picture here. Upper left corner is a young girl from India. These are just photos off the internet. I don't know these people, all right? Uh, she's Hindu, so as a Hindu, she was brought up worshiping uh, multiple gods, um, like thousands of gods in the Hindu pantheon, uh, but she's in India. Uh, the woman in the center is from uh, Republic of Congo. Um, most likely in a lot of the African nations, there might be kind of an animist uh, ancestor worship kind of thing. If that's what she was brought up with, that's what she knows on the far right is a, a, a pygmy from New, Papua New Guinea. Um, don't know much about their tribal religions, but we can pretty, pretty, pretty much be sure they're not Muslim, Catholic, Christian, or Hindu. But today, and then bottom left, teenager from Saudi Arabia, uh, obviously most likely brought up uh, with the Quran, the pillars of Islam, uh, praying to Allah. 
And the bottom right is not another people from foreign country. The bottom right is a Mormon family. So Mormons believe <clears throat> that Jesus uh, was just kind of the pinnacle of manhood, humanity, in the way that we can be godlike. So Mormons believe that us and Jesus are on the same plane. We just need to figure it out and we can be just like him. Um, I mean, we believe as Christians we could be like Christ, but he's still the one on the throne. Mormons say, well, no, he's, we, can, we can get a throne and pull up right next to him. But that's what they were brought up in, right? And I'm saying this because all these people, through no fault of their own, and on this one, were, are, were brought up into religious traditions and cultures that had, really didn't have uh, Christian principles, or for that matter, Christ as the center of what they were understanding, all right? And I say this, again, through no fault of their own. So what does Jesus do with these people? I mean, most of us grew up in churches. Most of us probably had your own Bible. I had my own Bible when I was like five years old or whatever. But they didn't. You know, Book of Mormon, Quran, various Hindu, there's various Hindu kind of books of... So what does Jesus do with these people? And I talked about this some last week. What, is he, what did we do? And I made this statement. Here go the next slide. It seems arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way to God. And I'm, it seems that way, right? Because in the coexist, you know, there's like the this is Islam, Jewish, Judaism, there's a, you know, Eastern religions, all kinds of things represented. And why can't we just do that? Shouldn't we just kind of get in line in our, in our... Shouldn't we just be happy being at the end of the word... And just be okay with everybody else. Is it arrogant to say Jesus is the only way? All right? I'm going to add a word to that. This is what I said two weeks ago. But this, now I'm going to add this. Is it, it seems unfair. Or maybe it does seem to say that Jesus is the only way to God. Because the little map you have on your, on your purple sheet, you'll notice uh, the bluish areas, 31% of the world population is Christian. Now, I don't mean by Christian they really have the spirit of Christ in them. Because people, some people are Christian, but they don't. They don't honor Jesus at all. But, so all the bluish areas would be highly Christian, Catholic, whatever areas. But then you have other areas that are Muslim, uh, Eastern religion, Buddhism, uh, animist religion, ancestor religion. So if only 31% of the world even has Christian influence in that sense, is it unfair to the other 69% that God has Jesus saying he's the only way to know God. And I'm saying this as an honest question. Is it, is it unfair of God to say, well, if you were born in a blue place, you got a much better chance of hearing about Jesus. you got a much better chance of responding to Jesus. At least that's what we think, right? But if you're born in like a green, man, you're bad luck if you're green or brown or whatever colors are out there. Is God that random? Because some of the things that we... Uh, and I'm guessing that some of these questions aren't questions that are like hot on your mind. But I think we have to ask those questions because then we have to decide, is, is Jesus really Lord of all or not? Because if he's not Lord of all, then we could pick and choose of the things he says. So is it arrogant to say he's the only way? Is it unfair? Is God being unfair to put that to Jesus, for Jesus to have said that? All right. So go to the next slide. I've been doing a series called Jesus Wants You to Wake Up, and it's kind of a play. Well, it's not kind of. It is a, a play on the whole woke movement, being woke in our culture today, but we're not, we're not mocking that because I think some of the things that the woke movement has brought up is for the things for the church that really we have to think about. 
But we always, and I've said this every week, we always have to think about the starting point is we trust Jesus. What does he have to say on these issues? The starting point on any of these issues, go to the next slide, because we've talked about uh, GLBTQ issues, transgender, uh, white privilege, racism, gun violence, um, you know, multiple different world religions. We've talked about all those. So the question is, obviously the question, starting point is not what do, what do I think or what do you think? The question is, what does Jesus think about these things? Did he say anything pertaining to these things? Because we have to start with, what did Jesus say that has anything to do with these issues? And then we have to build our understanding from there. Because the question we want to know is, what does Jesus think about these things? What does Jesus think about white privilege? What does Jesus think about gay people? What does Jesus think about other world religions? And, and I've said this, but I want to keep repeating it. We can't draw a conversation bubble around Jesus, you know, like the comic strip. We can't write in what we think he would have said. We can only go by what he did say, all right? So go to the next slide. So this is the, one of the things he did say about this particular issue of other world religions. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. Um, and I put down these pictures of these individuals that I had just talked about because I, I, I thought I, I want to put faces on the screen because these are real people and real faces and real stories. Um, they had friends when they were in fifth grade. So... What do we do with Jesus saying he's the only way to know God? And, you know, you've, you may have heard, I had one friend of mine that used to always say, well, Jesus is the way for me, but he's not the way for everybody. But that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is saying here. He's saying no one comes to the Father except through me. So he seems, not seems, he does have a rather exclusionary view of himself. And some people, the word you get, that gets thrown out a lot is, well, that's not very inclusive. Um, but in, in the sense of this, knowing the Father, Jesus is quite exclusive about himself. And I don't think any of us say Jesus is being arrogant here. He just, he knows that's true about himself. But we have to start with that. Now, we, ha we can wrestle with the questions that poses. Like, what about these other people? All right? And then one other statement that Jesus makes um, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me. All right? It's interesting, in the previous verse, he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now he says, but nobody can even come through me unless God draws them. So every one of you, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's because God drew you. It's not, it's, ultimately, it's not because you grew up in a Christian home or you went to a Christian church. That may have been an influence, but ultimately it's because what Jesus says, God drew you to him. So if God can draw me or Matt Jackson or Jesse Crane, if he can draw us to God, can he also draw these people to God through Jesus without them really having the Bible? I mean, again, I'm, I'm asking these questions because otherwise God becomes this proprietary 31% of the world only kind of God, which seems a little bit, that's, personally, that's not a God I, I, I want to worship if he's just being random, Right? But he says, people can know him if the Father draws them. And we also know from the Bible, it says that God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. So it seems like God's target of people that he wants to draw to Jesus, to draw to himself, is everybody. So, you know, my son David is 17. His opportunity to know Jesus 
and be drawn by God is no different. I don't know if this guy's 17, but let's assume he is 17. It's no different than this. He has a, this guy has the same chance of knowing God as my son David does. And you might think, well, that doesn't make sense because David grew up in a church where there's a Bible and we talk about Jesus in our home. But I think God's an equal opportunity to God. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean, and I said this before, it doesn't mean that Muslims also the way to God or Hinduism is the way to God because we have to wrestle again with Jesus saying, no, there's one way, it's me. Only way to know God is through me. And the only way people can know me is if God draws them. That is true universally for all humanity at all time. Jesus wasn't giving like a, a, a picture in time kind of thing. So again, we have, then we have to kind of think, what do we do with that? How do we wrestle with that? And I want to just talk about a few passages in the Scripture where Jesus dealt, again, we go back to Jesus because everything's about Jesus, right? We go back, how did Jesus deal with people who were outside of the circle of Israel? In other words, they were not part of, they weren't part of the blue in the map, all right? And again, again like I said, I'm not, as, just because America's a Christian country, which I would even debate that, you and I, we all know a lot of people in America that, are, that would call themselves Christian but have nothing to do with the Spirit of Christ, which in that sense they're not Christian. But let's say if there was a map in Jesus' day, the map would be totally around Israel, and they would have first dibs, I suppose, on knowing God. But yet, let's look and see how Jesus dealt with people who weren't part of the blue circle, if I can call it that. How did he deal with them? And I think that will give us some clues, understanding, about how Jesus might deal with some of these other people. And I'm going to do some this week. I'm going to finish on this next week. But I, so how do we think about this? Well, again, we have to go, how did Jesus deal with these kind of people? All right, first slide. So in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus interacts with a Roman centurion. So the Romans were occupying Israel. They didn't, Israel, of course, didn't want them there. It was like Nazi Germany occupying France. Uh, Roman, typically, the Roman individual would have grown up in a very pagan kind of religious environment. Multiple gods, multiple deities, kind of pick and choose so this Roman centurion wasn't even brought up in any kind of a, he wasn't even brought up in anything versed in the Old Testament, which at that time was the Jewish Bible. But the Roman centurion comes to Jesus. So here's an outsider, outside of the blue, the blue zone, I'll say, comes to Jesus. And again, we have to assume from what Jesus already said that God drew this Roman centurion to Jesus. And the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, has a slave that's, or a servant that's sick and dying. And this Roman centurion, he'd heard some things about Jesus, and he goes to Jesus and he says, can you heal this? Can you heal this servant of mine? And Jesus has this interaction with him, and uh, he even says, Jesus, you just need to say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus, in response, says, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I mean, Jesus was surrounded by Jewish people who knew the Old Testament. Some of them memorized parts of it. But this Roman centurion from a pagan environment shows something to Jesus. And Jesus, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. So it seems like Jesus is looking for faith. And faith, not just a belief system, but there was some degree of reliance and trust in this Jesus. But Jesus' response to this outsider was quite strong. This outsider, I haven't seen faith, and he healed the man. 
He healed the man's servant. But just when Jesus, I haven't seen faith like this. And you'll notice in the, in the Gospels, Jesus often talks about, oh, ye of little faith. I mean, so it seems like Jesus is looking for faith, whether somebody grew up in a Christian home or whether they grew up in uh, New Delhi, India, or Peking, China. Where Jesus is looking for faith that centers itself on him. And you might say, well, wait, how do they do that if they don't know Jesus? Let's, let's just leave that question out there for now. But that's the Roman centurion. Now the next one, Canaanite woman. So the Canaanites were the people who occupied Israel, the area where Israel is before they got there. And the Canaanites also were multiple deities. Uh, you might have heard phrases like Baal in the Old Testament. The god Baal was a bull, god of the god of fertility and other things. There was the Asherah poles. And uh, Canaanite religion had quite a bit of sexuality kind of woven into religion in a weird kind of voice. All right? So this woman would have had none no upbringing in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, Jewish scripture, none. But somehow, she knows where Jesus is, and we have to believe what Jesus already said, that somehow the Father drew her to Jesus. And this woman, her issue was she had a daughter who was demon-possessed, and she wanted desperately for the daughter to be free of the, uh, the demonization of Satan. She approaches Jesus and begs, you can read the whole story if you want to read it in Matthew 15, but he, Jesus has this conversation, and she shows, she says, no, but he, and he basically says, I, I, was sent for the, I was sent to the Israelites. I was sent to the blue zone, Jesus said. And she basically said, yeah, but I'm, I'm coming to you too, and basically, do you have anything for me in a begging kind of way? And what does Jesus say about this woman? Your faith is great. So here this Roman centurion, Jesus sees something in him, your faith is great. This Canaanite woman, non-churched woman, wow, your faith is great. And you and I may stop to think, well, how can her faith be great if she doesn't even know the first thing about theology? Maybe, maybe that in itself doesn't matter as much to Jesus. I mean, theology matters. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. But, so your faith is great. And then last one, and this is when Jesus uh, is He's talking to Jewish people, and he refers to a story from the Old Testament, but it's kind of the same kind of theme, because he talks about, uh, it's called the widow of Zarephath, that's why I have a Gentile widow, an Assyrian officer who was a, a man named Naaman. Both of them, and it was during the Old Testament time of Elijah, and Jesus reminds his Jewish hearers, hey, there were a lot of widows during the time of Elijah, but where did God send Elijah? He sent her to a Gentile woman outside of the house of Israel. And that's the story where he asks her to give her all he has, she has left of the oil and bread and flour. And, and it keeps replicating itself miraculously. So this woman, and Jesus points to the woman, this woman had faith in what the prophet Elijah asked her to do because Elijah said, this is the God of heaven telling you to do this. So she had faith. But Jesus is holding her up as another example of faith. And and then he mentions about Naaman the Syrian. He said there were a lot. He had, Naaman had uh, leprosy. And Jesus said there were a lot of lepers in that time of Elijah's day. But who did God send? Who did God send Elijah to heal? The Syrian pagan army guy named Naaman. But what did Naaman have to do? He had to do what the prophet, i.e., God, told him to do for the prophet to be healed. So here Jesus is holding up. We started with a Roman centurion, great faith. Then we had this Canaanite woman, great faith. 
Then we have, he holds up from the past, this widow from Zarephath, great faith, because she did what the prophet of God told her to do. Then we have this Naaman, great faith, he did what the prophet of God told him to do. So it seems as when, if, when people are drawn to Jesus, he's looking for great faith. He's not looking for, ultimately, uh, church attendance records or uh, moral character, so to speak. Those things matter. I'm they don't matter. But it seems like what Jesus is looking for is great faith. So some conclusions from these things, and again, we'll talk more about it next week. But I, so first thing is this, uh, and I said this last week or two weeks ago. We can't escape this statement if Jesus said, I'm the way to know God and there's no other. No one can. Jesus is Lord over all. And over all doesn't just mean over all the Jewish people. It means over all people. It's like this friend of mine, his name's Sam. He, he just, he's told me many times, well, Jesus is the way for me, but not everybody. Sometimes he's also said he is a way to know God. That doesn't match with what Jesus said about himself. So we, have, we cannot escape this bedrock truth that Jesus believes about himself, that he's Lord of all, all people. There's other, other statements in the gospel where he talks about all people and all the nations and all the people of the world, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to blah, blah, blah Jesus, but you know what I mean. But Jesus believes this about himself. And if Jesus believes about himself, then we really don't have a choice to argue. But we hold it in tension with the other things like what about all these people. Second thing, and I mentioned this two weeks ago, but I'm going to repeat it again. God's mercy is enormous. Um, it's bigger than we think it is toward people who are not, uh, maybe didn't, toward people everywhere. He's in, it's enormous toward us, but his mercy was enormous toward uh, this Canaanite woman, this Roman centurion. His mercy was enormous to Naaman, the Syrian officer, and his mercy was enormous to this widow from Zarephath, and like, he was, he was, God will go farther than we think he would ever go toward people. Um, there was a time, there was a situation, this phrase kind of grabbed me, uh, years ago I had a chance to, long story short, I had a chance to travel to Israel on a tour with a, a pastor that I really respect, and we were at a place that was the, at least thought to be the, the graveside of Jesus, and all these, uh, there were a lot of women uh, I think they were Italian women. They were Italian Catholic women. I'm not disparaging Catholics nor Italians, nor women, actually, for that matter. But, and they were, they were bent over, kissing the rock on the ground, crying and kissing. And to me, it just seemed very uh, superstitious. Like, this is weird. I'm, I, I, didn't, I mean, I didn't lean down and kiss the rocks, right? And this pastor mentor of mine, who I have a great deal of respect for, I, I, I just said to him, what do you, his name was Jack Hafer, but I just, they called him Pastor Jack. And I said, Pastor Jack, what, what, do, you make, what do you do with that? And, and when I said it, I know I had the kind of a face of minor disgust. Like, what do you do with that? That's kind of, that's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, they're crying, they're kissing a stone. I mean, it's like a really overly emotional and his statement was a rebuke to me, but he didn't deliver it that way. He just said, you know what, Matt? The mercy of God is enormous. God's reach and how he wants to touch the lives of people is way bigger than what we think. He will always be consistent with Jesus being the only way to know God. 
And just because I worship a certain way and I may not be as emotional or I have, you know, whatever it is, God's mercy, his reach is huge. And there will be, make sure I say this right, there will be people in heaven because the mercy of God is enormous in helping them understand Jesus that you and I might be shocked if we knew now who they're going to be. I'm not saying heaven's going to be an ollie ollie income free. Everybody can come on in now. We were just playing a religion game and some win. But I think uh, the Bible is pretty clear of God's enormous mercy toward all kinds of people. Uh, and be, there will be people in heaven, always, every one of them, because of the blood of Jesus. But I think there'll be Muslims in heaven, not because they're good Muslims, because somehow the blood of Jesus. I don't always know how that works. There'll be Hindus in heaven, not because they're good Hindus, but because somehow the blood of Jesus and they were pursuing God. I, I don't know. But we have, to, we, have to be, we have to hold on to Jesus. I'm the only way. But he also said, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. So if the Saudi Arabian teenager seeks God with all his heart, and even though the God he's seeking name is Allah, but maybe he's really seeking God. God, God. You know, the Bible God. And maybe the young girl from India, maybe she thinks, she thinks she's seeking all these Hindu gods. But maybe she's searching. But God's promise is, if you seek me with all your heart, you'll find me. And again, I'm not, it's not a matter of sincerity. It's not like, well, if you're a sincere Muslim or a sincere Hindu, all roads lead to God. The Bible does not support that statement at all. right? What the Bible does say is, Jesus is the only way to know God. Uh, those who seek God will find him, regardless of where you grew up regardless of what religious influence you grew up in. The last of the three statements I'm going to make is this. This is a new one from the few weeks ago. Jesus is looking for signs of faith. I mean, he's, he, when he said to the Roman centurion, wow, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. And the Gentile, or the Canaanite woman, your faith is great. I mean, it's almost like if somebody came in the doors who, uh, I don't know, let's, let's just say they're... Uh, Tibetan Buddhist, all right? But they have been seeking God and somehow they've had an interaction with Jesus and they're telling us about it. And if somebody were to say, wow, I haven't seen that kind of faith in the whole church, I think we'd feel like a little bit like, what? what? No, but Jesus is looking for faith, which is this absolute trust of what God can do in my life through Jesus. So he's looking for that, and he's looking for that in my life and your life. He's not, looking, he's not looking for, like I said, checked off boxes, I attend church, I do this or whatever. I mean, he, this, this is where I'm kind of pushing it back to us. So let's not talk about, we're not talking about the non-blue circle people in the world. Now we're talking back to us. Because in Hebrews 11, when it's talking about faith, the Bible tells us it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to God must believe that God exists and he rewards those who sincerely seek him. All right? Without other versions, maybe the version you grew up with was without faith, it's impossible to please God. And again, the faith is not, I believe the right things, but it seems to have it's be this right connection with God where there's a trust of what God through Jesus can do. And I'm sure these, this Canaanite woman and this Roman centurion, they, they knew a little about Jesus. They just knew there was something about him that was unique. But, and he rewarded their faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Because anyone who wants to come to him, anyone who wants to come to him, 
India, China, Saudi Arabia, Papua New Guinea, anybody who wants to come to God must believe that God exists and it rewards those who earnestly seek him. But it's true for us because God's looking for signs of faith in your life and my life. Maybe a sign of faith um, is something God's been asking you to do and you're afraid to do it. I told my wife one time there was something I was afraid to do in a situation. And she said, what's that? And I said, I'm, I'm afraid to meet up with this person because I'm afraid that it's gonna, it was a situation where I really needed to offer them forgiveness, but I didn't want to. But I decided God wanted me to, and I think forgiveness is a sign of faith God may be looking for, for from some of us. Maybe there's somebody God wants you to The Bible talks about another sign of faith that Jesus recognizes when people repent. When they turn away, they stop sinning. They, maybe, there's, maybe there's a habit in your life that you know Jesus is telling you, stop it. Or maybe there's a habit he wants you to start and you're, and you're giving God the straight arm. The sign of faith that Jesus looks for is obedience. Do what, do what he told you to do. So Jesus talks about forgiveness. He talks about um, doing good to those who hate you. That's a sign of faith. He talks about tithing. That's a sign of faith. There's all kinds of things that Jesus says that are signs of faith that are act, activities and actions we do in response to what he's asked us to do. It's not a matter of, I believe all the right things and I've scored 100 on the theology test. Theology matters, but what matters more to Jesus is, are you and I showing him signs of faith in our relationships, with our money, with our future, with all the choices we make? Are we doing the things and obeying the things Jesus told us to do? Um, so, that maybe is the starting point. Yes, there's people around the world that we have to think about how does God interact with them? How does Jesus save people in Papua New Guinea in the middle of the jungle tribe of pygmies? But the first question we have to be wrestling with is, am I showing the sign? Am, am I living a life of faith? Am I doing the things Jesus asked people to do? Loving your enemies, forgiving those, forgive those who hurt you, give, be generous. All the things Jesus said to do. Um, so then we'll finish with this last one on the screen up here uh, as we, we lead to communion we do communion every week at Exodus um, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ all right, there again Christ is a unique figure there's no other world religious leader um, that anything is said in the way that the fullness of God lived in them so Jesus stands alone even in that sense and through him God reconciled everything to himself. Everything means everything, not just the Jewish nation, not just the blue zone. All right? He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So Jesus' death on the cross, his death and his resurrection, something changed in the universe when that happened. Something changed where you and I and the young girl in India, the young boy in Saudi Arabia, the old woman in Congo, they now have an opportunity to be reconciled with God because of what Jesus did, and only because of what Jesus did. Not because they're good people, not because they did the right things, but because everything has an opportunity to be reconciled with God because of what Jesus did. So every single human being that's walked the earth has an opportunity to be reconciled with God because of what Jesus did, and only because of what Jesus did. So when he had the Last Supper, when he was eating with his disciples the night before he was betrayed, he said, this is my body, this is my blood. 
given for you. Every time you eat this and drink this, remember me. Every time you eat this and drink this, remember me. And we, he's not asking us to remember, okay, this communion thing, it's all your fault because you're sinners, I had to go to the cross. That's not what he's asking. He's asking us to remember what he said his mission in life was, and that was to reconcile you and I with God, to bring us the life and the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, because he alone is the one who can do it. And again, I said a few weeks ago, if, if Jesus is not Lord of all the earth and all peoples, including Muslims, Hindus, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons, then I think what we end up doing is we start, we can kind of water down the commands of Jesus. Well, if he's not Lord, we start picking and choosing what he asks us to do. But if he's Lord of everything, then we have to deal with that and obey what he's asking us to do. So um, let me pray, and then I'll explain how we do communion. Jesus, thank you that you gave yourself. Um, first of all, thank you that you gave yourself to the mission the Father assigned to you. And that was uh, to bring, preach good news to us and to bring healing and restoration to all of our souls. Um, and Jesus, thank you that you obeyed the Father and you were allowed yourself to be arrested, crucified, killed, but then that you now sit at the right hand of God, fully resurrected, fully alive, and you now, this moment, are interceding for every single one of us that we would have this, your spirit inside of us. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for opening up for us this new and living way to walk with you and to know you. And we're grateful, Jesus. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. So here's how we do communion. And uh, instead of Aaron, since he's not here, John's going to play a song here in a second. But uh, we come on up. We don't dismiss by rows. You just come up as you feel led to. Um, you have two options. You can either take a wafer and then dip it in the cup or if you'd rather just take one of these self-contained wafer cups, which I wonder if Jesus foresaw that at the Last Supper, that we'd have cellophane-wrapped cups, but I don't know. But you can take that too, either one. Uh, but we come on up, um, take it, and then most people eat it right away. Some people take it back to the seat. Obviously with these, you might have to go back to tear them open and stuff. Um, but uh, uh, come on up, and you're welcome to the table of Jesus. So John, go ahead and start the music there. <laughs>